This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihew from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. All right, everybody out there in listening land, this is episode 22 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We are back again. Not a holiday week. Well, sort of a holiday week. We had MLK Day, which kind of felt a little bit funky yesterday. Phones weren't ringing as much as I thought they would. And then I realized it's MLK Day. So, uh, hey, we're back. But hey, Steve, nice to have you back in our virtual studio. We got a really cool show this week. But before we get into that, what's going on? Hey, Tucker, good to be back. Yeah, MLK Day. That is kind of one of those tweener holidays that it kind of slows things up, but it doesn't shut everything down. And you're kind of like, is it a holiday, isn't it? I, I was in the office, but a lot of people weren't. So yeah, no, everything's going really good. Really good. Chat a little bit about what I have going on here. A couple things on the brokerage side. I'll start there because I have a little bit more to talk about on the broker side. On the brokerage side, we just hit a exciting milestone. Premier Property Group just passed the 500 broker count which wow. was very, very exciting for us. Our biggest challenge right now in that regard is just office space. We are working diligently on opening at least two more offices this year, and there may even be another one or two beyond that that we're kind of in talks with. On the broker side, I had an interesting... This was this is actually two weeks ago, but you and I haven't... We, we did the Masters episode last week, and we didn't really talk about our business. But this was... Something that I, I immediately knew I needed to share with our listeners. Trid is alive, and I don't know if I should sell. <laughs> is out there bad. I talked about this a little bit on a different transaction that, that we had a snafu on, and this one happened on another one. This is new construction. My builder, we'd been in escrow for 60 days, and the lender puts out docs and don't ask me there's there's a whole nother discussion here about about lenders not doing their job diligently but they put out docs at 359,000 rather than 356,000 and the reason they did that was we we countered back and forth and apparently the buyer's agent had not sent the lender all addendums so all they saw was the the 359 now they still should have caught that the box that says both sides accept this and acknowledge it wasn't there. And this this comes from my lending background, as as and as you you can attest to as well. Furthermore, the lender should always, on every transaction, should verify with at least a couple parties the final terms of what they're working on. So, in other words, you know, when a lender gets a contract. They shouldn't just try to make heads or tails of it and assume they they understand everything. It's it's usually pretty effective to either pick up the phone or even send an email to a couple different parties. It could be the buyer, maybe the buyer's agent, and it wouldn't even be terrible to get the listing agent to verify. But just saying, hey, guys, this is what I see. This is the price. This is the close date. This is the seller concessions. These are things that are going to get affected by TRID as we move forward, and they are going to cause delays. So in my case, docs go out. A day before closing, we have three thousand extra dollars there. The the docs are out at three hundred fifty nine thousand. The sales price should be three fifty six. You know, our first re reaction, being new to trade, was, oh no, no, not a problem. You know, lender, crank out docs and and let's get them out there again. <laughs> yeah, uh -uh. right. Huh? That does not work that way. This would have been about a week delay 
By the time they sent out a new CD, they redisclosed. There's the waiting period. So we got a little creative on this one, and we just had the builder add in a few extras. There was a washer and dryer and a couple other goodies, and we kept the price of the 359 The buyer really needed to move, close and move in. Builder, of course, wants to close. It worked out in the end because the builder got a little bit better comp there in their subdivision. You know, I got a question for you, though, Steve. Did the appraisal come in at 359 Is that why they did that? It did come at three fifty nine. I bet yeah, that's what screwed them up. It did come at three fifty nine. I don't know if that had. I don't know if the appraiser had the right addendums or not. Maybe not. Maybe not. You know, I hadn't really thought too much about that. But it it, it clearly wasn't an issue on the appraisal. The, the appraisal came in at the three fifty nine. And so in the end, the buyer got a few extra things that they were happy to get. But you're not always going to be able to fix these things as creatively as we can. I mean, new construction has some advantages, and I'm telling you, I'm not alone in these in these experiences. It is out there lenders used my my example as a learning lesson when you get a contract verify with a few parties that you are reading it correctly because if you just assume that you are and you get docs out incorrect there's problems and it's no longer just a 24 48 hour problem it can be a week plus yeah that uh, <laughs> trade is alive and well it sounds <laughs> <laughs> so what's going on with you tucker it's been a busy busy week We've got a couple. Well, we got one brand new start that we just got. It's, I felt like we've been in the starting box forever on this. And for anybody that's, you know, been in the builder side of the business or done large renovations, dealing with the city and permitting and getting your building permits can be a, a real challenge that a lot of people don't talk about. And the reason being is because you get to deal with the, a variety of characters down at the city, some of which are good at their job, some of which are not so good at their job. And so, We've been stuck in the starting box on our uh, house that's just right around the corner from this past year's Street of Dreams. And finally, finally, we got our building permit last Friday. I popped down a uh, whopping $15,000 and some change, and they gave me a building permit in return. And we've been able to start that house. So we're doing dig out for foundation today. And uh, we've finally been able to build our construction schedule now that we got our permit. But we were literally stuck in the we'll have your permit to you tomorrow stage for two months. And uh, you can imagine how frustrating that is, especially when you're building a multi-million dollar house and all the money you have tied up and out there and, you know, you got to build schedules and just incredibly frustrating. So I'm happy that we're started. As it turns out, there was other builders that were equally frustrated with that type of process. And there was a bit of a lynch mob, the meeting that took place down at the city this past week, kind of uh, discussing this individual that has been rather bothersome to a number of different builders. So hopefully the city got the message. Hopefully they'll make the changes needed. I know they... Uh, they don't really like to just fire people because it puts them in a bad position. So maybe they will reassign that person to a, uh, a slightly less demanding job uh, that uh, doesn't affect customer service to the builder so much. So either way, I'm happy that we're getting started on that. Outside of my business, there was an interesting article that I didn't get to mention last week because, as you said, when we have Joe on, we just tend to talk about a lot of stuff and it's hard to get anything else in other than what's going on in Masters. So there was an article, and this will be interesting for our guests as well to kind of chime in about, and it'll be a good segue to talk to them. But our esteemed mayor, Charlie Hale, and you all know how I feel about Charlie Hale and his real estate proposals, but he had a uh, demolition tax that he was going to try and impose on uh, builders, developers who demolish homes that he and his cronies deem livable in the uh, city of Portland, and that, and that fee was going to be $25,000, or basically it's a tax. They couldn't set it up as a fee because that would never get approved. Well, it appears via the uh, one of the latest issues of the Daily Journal of Commerce, 
Mayor Hales has abandoned that plan. It sounds like everybody else who's in government down there finally uh, convinced him that that was an idiotic plan and probably not that smart to try and push that through to begin with. Either that or there were some people in the building industry that told him it might be best for his health to just let that one slide. So uh, as it turns out, we no longer have a uh, $25,000 teardown tax that's on the table, which is great because that'll continue to spur the redevelopment of some of those fringe neighborhoods that are just now starting to see new construction. It's expensive enough in this town. As I talked about, you know, I paid 15 grand for a building permit in Lake Oswego. That's because there was a house there. If there wasn't a house there, that building permit would have been between 45 and $50,000 at the end of the day. And so when you start looking at what building permits cost, when you start getting in these fringe neighborhoods where there's double lots or there's a teardown house, you know, if you've got huge building permits and city of Portland is equally expensive, and then on top of that, you have a potential teardown tax, it really freezes the redevelopment that's occurring in a lot of these fringe type neighborhoods like Foster Powell down in the um, Flavelle Duke area. Historically, it's been a pretty crappy area. Now it's starting to change. You know, it's there's starting to be some some lower end new construction for city of Portland that's going in and it's starting to clean up those areas. And so I think it's a good thing that that twenty five thousand dollar teardown tax is off the table. I think it'll continue to move those fringe neighborhoods forward to becoming better neighborhoods. And at the end of the day, it's just going to improve the city of Portland. So that's what's going on with me. We've got a great couple guests on this week, though, and so I, I don't want to leave them sitting here any longer. I think they've heard us jibber-jabber enough. And I've known Gerard from Ironbridge Lending, who is one of the guests, and then Richard, who is basically his right-hand man that runs everything for him, at least from what I can tell. I'm sure he can elaborate a little more. But they run Ironbridge Lending, which is based out of the Pearl here in downtown Portland. I've known Gerard for a long time. He's a great supporter of our other podcast that's a nationwide show. And I've actually borrowed tons of money from him over the years. And uh, we've also, you know, we've got a lot of mutual friends, Steve, I'm sure that have borrowed money from him as well. So Gerard, Richard, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Tucker. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Tucker. Yeah, I'm happy to have you guys. I figured it was well overdue. We've been trying to get you on the show for a while, but you guys have been dealing with some lovely uh, stuff that you have to deal with when it comes to owning a mortgage company these days. So it's been a little, <laughs> we got pushed out a little farther than we had hoped. Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. So I, I, when Tucker mentioned some stuff you guys were working through last week, I asked him, so you guys are regulated by the state just like a mortgage company. Is that correct? We are. We are required to be a licensed lender in the state of Oregon, but that has a lot to do with state licensing requirements. Oregon defines a residential loan simply by the type of structure and not by the purpose of the loan. And so we make commercial purpose loans. But in Oregon, if it's secured by a residential structure, it's a residential loan, and therefore you have to be licensed as a residential lender. And you have MLOs and everything, anyone that's talking to the, the various borrowers? Yes, we do, exactly. Interesting. And, Interesting. and I have been through a couple of those same audits, <laughs> so I can attest to the, the fact that it is very time-intensive, and sometimes it can be a little challenging on your patients. So I applaud you for dealing with it probably yet again. But that aside, so besides being on the show, and I want to thank you guys for joining us again, I want to kind of take our listeners back because Ironbridge has become really, it's a big lending entity at this point. You guys have a, a far reach as far as not only locally here, but across the country. You lend to a lot of different investors and borrowers from many different states. But maybe Gerard, take us back. And I, I remember when we were sitting in that same office, actually, that you guys are recording in right now, and you had... I think that you came in one day and you told us that you were going to be starting this company. And uh, we had a conversation about it. And I think it was maybe, what, five years ago, six years ago. And, you know, maybe take us back to then talk about, you know, what your goals were with starting Ironbridge 
And then at the same time, what were you trying to accomplish? What did you, did you want to connect with investors at the time? And then obviously we can dive into a little more of where it's come, but maybe take us back to the beginning there. And, and when you started Ironbridge, talk about that a little bit. Sure, sure. We'll, we'll try to keep it short and sweet. And then you can dig in if you want further. But, you know, we began, my wife and I began this as an investment idea. We wanted to buy houses at the auction and build a rental portfolio. And we quickly learned that we weren't very good at rehabbing houses. But one of our competitors pulled me aside one day and told me, hey, you know, we are borrowing money at these interest rates from these private lenders. And I was just very excited about that whole idea. And my wife and I are from the finance industry. So the idea of risk and reward and rates of return and asset coverage and interest coverage all made good sense to me. And so we launched the fund in early 2009 and have been going for almost seven years. And today we uh, are lending in roughly 24 states and have 10 employees. And we average around 250 to 270 loans at any given time to about 160 borrowers. Yeah, that's, wow. a, that's a huge number. And so then, obviously, uh, during the growth process, at what point did Richard come on? I want to get him on here in a little bit so we can uh, put him on the spot a little bit as well. But what, what, what point did you bring him on? And I know at this point, he's pretty much your right-hand guy. Maybe talk about what he came on as and now what he does for you guys. Sure, sure. Well, um, you know, it's funny. This business has moved from a home office to a condo at 700 square feet to 1,400 square feet. Richard was our first employee and Richard, what year was it that you came on? I think that was uh, September uh, 2011. 2011. Yeah, I think at that point, our fund was about, let's say, somewhere between 6 and $8 million. And uh, now we're hovering about 60 to $70 million. So a lot's happened in four and a half years. Yeah, that's about 10 times growth, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's you some... know, the, the beautiful thing about it, Tucker, is just that you know, none of this growth has been forced. On the borrower side, Gerard, myself, the entire team, we've just we've delivered fantastic experiences for our clients. And, you know, because of that, you know, we really haven't had to do marketing. They've done the marketing for us. And that's the best type of growth, right? That organic growth that you don't have to force. I definitely agree. And I can attest to that as well, because obviously I've been a borrower for you guys, not so much as recently, but over the years, you know, millions of dollars in loans that, that we've taken out. And I can say without a doubt that you guys do create a, a very easy, good experience for people that are borrowing money from you. And that's definitely a, a major reason why you've grown for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, yeah. I have a couple of follow up questions and comments in regards to that as well, Gerard and Richard. You know, I doubt you remember this, Gerard, but I actually reached out to you. I was referred to you by another realtor in, I want to say 2014, I came across a flip opportunity and I, I reached out to a friend of mine. They recommended you guys. I reached out, got, I got your package, your application package. And, and I had a fantastic experience. It ended up that I had a, another, I had a client basically that wrote a check and it just made the process easier. So we didn't actually go through with the funding, but I only have heard great things about you. I've also seen some posts in the master's group on Facebook about you guys. And whenever there's questions about private money, your name is always thrown in the mix as, as a great resource. So I wanted to ask you, though, in a quick follow-up question, I mean, I, I it didn't go lost on me that you started in the darkest time imaginable in the housing market. And here we are seven years later in a pretty good housing market, probably, I should say, very good, especially with the influx of people to Portland beyond what the rest of the nation is seeing. 
how has that changed things for you? Have you guys loosened guidelines? Are they exactly the same? And also, how has it changed the landscape of what was being offered or what is being offered now versus what wasn't then? In other words, I know spec financing did not exist in 2009 for builders, whereas today it seems to be coming back in, in some regards. So talk to us about that changing landscape. Well, yeah, it's been amazing to watch it all change over time. And I have to say that I'm going to tell you how it changed. But what's interesting is that we never really purposefully decided, let's get into spec building or let's get into this type of asset class. What would happen is guys like Tucker or other clients, we were supporting them in their business activity and they were at the auctions and then they decided to do REOs and then they decided to do spec building. And so we would just follow them and try to support them. And then over time, we adapted our underwriting and our, our, our systems to help meet their needs. So, for example, in 09 and 2000, basically 09 through 11, it was 100 percent auction or let's call it 95 percent auction source properties. And we would refinance our borrowers who would buy at the auction. We'd refinance them in 24 hours. You know, they'd go back to the auction and buy another one. And normally they were covering the rehab in those days. Then around 2012, 2013, the auctions got very competitive. There were a lot of, you know, I guess new entrants, if you will, some of them less experienced, probably overpaying. And so our savvier borrowers got more into short sales, buying at REO. And so we started doing that type of business. We probably started getting into more construction, sort of add-on construction improvement loans at that time because the project sizes were getting a little bit more than just carpet paint. And then, you know, you take that one step further, I'd say about 2014, even the REOs and short sales dried up. And so a lot of our clients, and again, I always think of Tucker, who was sort of a leader in this way, but, you know, they started getting into new development or big value add rehabs where they would find the beautiful, you know, like grandma's house, but in an attractive neighborhood, add a second story, go backwards, you know, the budgets became a hundred to 200,000. And so we adapted to meet those needs, you know, and I can, t I can let Richard talk a little bit about our loan programs and, and what we've done there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, over the time, like Gerard said, we've adapted as a lender by virtue of the fact that our borrowers have, uh, you know, changed their targets and, and different properties that they've been focusing on. And, and for us, one of the, the major things I would point out that's kind of shifted in our business is dealing with rehab budgets and, and construction loans. Typically, especially back in the day, and, and, and it's very much prevalent today as well, in the private lending industry, when lenders lend money for rehab or construction financing, many lenders will charge interest on the, the full budget from day one. And if you think about it, it makes sense. The lender is setting money aside for the borrower to make future draw requests on these construction funds. So it only makes sense that that money's making a rate of return for them rather than sitting idle. Well, something that Gerard and I did in order to adapt to our clients' needs was rather than charging interest on those rehab and construction funds from day one, you know, making those funds act like a line of credit where you're only being charged interest on whatever you're using. Like, like Gerard said, Tucker's had many large new construction projects. We've also supported a number of clients in the Bay Area doing million-dollar construction projects. And as Tucker alluded to, the city is never very quick when it comes to inspections and that is things true. of that nature. <laughs> so paying interest on money that you aren't using was just hurting our clients and their profits, eroding them those profits. So we adapted our business to 
help them alleviate that concern and also try and preserve the profits. That's great. Yeah, that's great. And I, and I can say that, you know, you guys have been very forward thinking and I know you're not taking too much credit for actually planning it so much, but you really have in terms of following the market, because as Steve alluded to, you know, I guess it was seven years ago that we had that conversation, that same office jarred where you were starting the fund. Seems like it wasn't that long ago, but man, seven years flew by. But anyway, back then you were right. Auctions were the big thing. And, you know, we were kicking around down at auctions and then we got into REOs and then we saw the writing on the wall with that. So we got into the private sale arena and, you know, you guys have kind of adapted. But I think another thing too, is that you've got, you've created such a great experience for people that you've been able to retain you know, quality borrowers, people that do this, this is their job. This is what they do every day, right? They're real estate investors. They go buy property under value. They add value. They resell it and they need financing to do it. And so you've kind of been been moving with your customers and providing them loan programs that make sense based on the type of product they're buying. And so it's it's been really cool to see that growth. But I can attest to the fact that a lot of the programs that you have are superior to what the market has to offer in a lot of ways. And so with that being said, you maybe want to talk about, you know, one of your programs in particular that I know is probably a highlight program. I'm sure a lot of people take advantage of it. But if somebody actually has a deal and it, they're buying it under market, obviously, and they need to put money into it to renovate it, to resell it, what is it you typically require down from them? Uh, now, obviously, this is good, you know, people that you trust. We're not talking about the sketchy borrower, but people that you trust. Uh, what does it require for down payment? Then do you extend money for rehab funds? How does all that work? Yeah, Tucker. So whenever a client gets a property under contract, you know, we always say, you know, make us one of your first calls because as you know, uh, you know, one of your one of your pitches to listing agents is being able to close in a quickly fashion. And as a lender, we need to try and keep pace with you guys because you move very quickly. So we have a pretty informal process. We tell our, our client, you know, once you get it under contract, give us a quick call. Let's talk about the property, your purchase, your rehab, your ARV. And then, you know, the client kind of paints a picture of, of what their rehab is generally going to look like. You know, from there, Gerard and I will hop on our computers, run our comps, and get the client a proposal within 24 to 48 hours. So it's a very quick turnaround. But the goal is this, you know, like you said, our clients, you know, are all making wise decisions. So, you know, they're typically buying properties under market value, and also they're going to create a, a large amount of value through the rehab. So what we say is this, as long as they're doing that, our goal is to try and lend them up to 90% of their purchase price, you know, and potentially 100% of their rehab budget, just as long as we're staying under 70% of our opinion of ARV after repair value. So, you know, as long as a property is a slam dunk, you know, the most leverage that a client could expect to see from us is 90% of purchase, 100% of the rehab budget. And, you know, that is really important to clients because, as you know, in this game, whenever you have the real estate bug, one property is never enough. You usually want to be doing multiple properties at the same time. And leveraging your own cash is extremely important in helping you scale the business and do multiple deals at once. So, Richard, do you guys not go to the property ever? Are there times where it's like a judgment call? Like, hey, you know, we can't quite tell and you, you zip out there. Or is that just something that doesn't happen? <laughs> That's a great question, Steve. It really, it's a case-by-case -case basis, Steve, and it's a good question. It can depend on the borrower, how much data is available publicly, and how complex the project is. So, for example, back in the auction days, many houses weren't listed, and so you didn't have any pictures. 
and even the, the buyer of the house wanted to go see what they just bought. So we used to drive a lot of those. If we were doing more auctions today, we'd probably send out an inspector instead because we just can't find the time to do those drives anymore. But there are so many projects these days that are listed that you have very good pictures. And so unless somebody is really pulling the wool over your eyes, you have pictures, you have Google Maps, you have lots of third-party resources. But again, in every market that we serve, we have inspectors. So if, if we just feel uncomfortable for whatever reason, we just make a phone call, inspector goes out there, takes, takes a bunch of pictures, and we're good. The other thing to point out is that with the construction loans, once work starts, we have inspectors that go out there periodically to see how progress is going. But Tucker, I wanted to add something to, to the question you asked. We talked about how we underwrite loans, but one of the, the needs that we've seen over develop is, you know, clients often have a pool of capital they're working with and they want to keep the ball rolling. They want to, you know, start one project, get it listed, maybe be 50% through with project number two and already be looking for project three. And as you guys know, this allows them to keep their crews working all the time. Crews have more loyalty. They're willing to work for better pricing. But in the business, we're finding that, you know what, property one wasn't selling in time. And so the borrower couldn't get his money to go buy property three. And all of a sudden, the wheels would start to slow down. So what we developed was a master loan and security agreement with each borrower so that we can look at all of the loans and all of the collateral we have with each borrower as one loan. So for example, Tucker, if we had three loans with you right now, and if two of them clearly had equity and one was about to get listed, and you, you put in a lot of sweat equity into these, and you said, Gerard, I'm short on cash, and I got this great deal, but I don't have money for a down payment. I gotta wait till house one sells. Well, because of the master loan, I could say, hey, Tucker, we'll lend you 100% of your purchase, so you're no money into this thing on day one, and we'll just get our down payment when, you, when one of your other houses sell. And so that all of a sudden allows you to take that pool of cash you have and utilize it in a much more efficient manner without those hiccups that, that are prevalent in this business. Yeah, Sounds I would like say for sure that that's a, a huge advantage. And, and also to Richard's point, you know, describing the potentially only 10% down on the purchase and up to 100% of your rehab funds, given that you keep your after repaired value under 70% overall. I mean, that's a huge competitive advantage in the marketplace. You know, I'm really familiar with what terms are across the country and, you know, tons of different uh, lenders just because of, you know, being in the business and being in the podcast world. You know, I talk to a lot of different people and, and I'm always curious, so I always ask, but I have not found anybody that lends as responsibly as you guys, but at the same time is able to offer such fantastic terms to their borrowers to allow them to leverage. And like you said, do one property and do another and do another, because, you know, that is the key on this side of the game. You have to keep your guys working. You have to schedule properly and you have to, you know, as you finish one, you need to be starting another. And sometimes the world doesn't work out quite perfectly. And so, you know, you need to utilize outside leverage uh, like from Ironbridge in order to help make those timelines line up and, and keep your business running smoothly. Sounds like your success has largely been a result of just innovation. I mean, you really are studying the market and studying what your clients need and addressing that in very creative ways. I'm very impressed with that. I did have a quick follow-up question because you were talking about that your clients making an offer. And this is something that has come up time and time and again. And I've seen it on the master's group be questioned. And I'm just curious your guys' take on this. If a broker is making an offer where they are using you guys, private funds like you, 
should they be checking the box that it's a cash offer or is it considered a loan? And I'm just curious your guys' take. Yeah, see, that really is an excellent question and one that we deal with quite often. So, you know, as our clients are writing their offers, really they should be writing their offers as cash and or private financing. So here's what we encounter quite often. As we know, sellers love it when they receive an offer and it says all cash, right? That, that makes them feel warm and fuzzy and very confident in the offer. When they accept that offer and the buyer turns around to a financing company like us, when we reach out to escrow to get the purchase agreement, the preliminary title report, and do our normal due diligence, escrow pushes on the brakes and they say, Ironbridge, you are not a party to this transaction. This offer was written as all cash and we do not view you a lender as all cash. In fact, you are financing. Now, you may be private financing and much easier to deal with than a traditional bank. Nonetheless, that's not the equivalent of cash. So that's definitely something that we deal with. Now, when escrow puts up those hurdles, you know, we're very adept at, at trying to massage the situation and see how we can, again, support our client and become party to the transaction. And, and usually we do overcome those hurdles. But you know, we will tell you that, especially with short sales and bank-owned properties, as both of you know very well, when you write an offer and they accept it, those terms are set in stone and you can't change you know, the, the buyers from an LLC to a corporation. You can't change the offer from cash to financing. It's, and they want to see proof of funds right away too. Absolutely. So when we encourage our clients to write their offers as cash and or private financing, one of the great things that we offer our clients as a customary service free of charge is pre-approval letters. So our clients very often will email us asking for one of two types of letters. We have a general pre-approval letter that states that a client's LLC or corporation is pre-approved up to a certain dollar amount to buy properties in the state of Oregon, for example. We also have a more tailored letter stating that our client is pre-approved up to XYZ amount to buy XYZ property. So, you know, we definitely support our clients that way. We will give them as many letters as they want, as often as they want, in a timely fashion. And as a result, they will submit that letter with their offer. And oftentimes, Gerard and I will get calls from listing agents saying, well, this letter sounds fantastic. Are you legit? Are you a legitimate company? And they want to see our merits and, and vet us as a, a, a good listing agent should. And I can tell you that when listing agents do call either Gerard or myself, we prefer it that way because we do a fantastic job selling the virtues of our client and their offer and how we can finance the transaction. And more often than not, I'd say eight times out of 10, when a listing agent calls us, you know, our client's offer is accepted. And if the listing agent happens to be a flipper as well, they usually want to find out how to borrow money from us. <laughs> <laughs> that would only make sense, right? <laughs> <laughs> so with that said, guys, and we're kind of, you know, wrap, as we kind of trying to wrap up the interview here. But before we do, uh, one thing, uh, a couple things I really want to talk about. Number one is, so now that we've talked about kind of what you guys do, how the business has grown, who is your ideal borrower? People that are listening, right? I mean, obviously, you can lend to anybody that's interesting, interested in, in, in buying real estate, uh, renovating it, reselling it, or, or basically needs bridge financing maybe if they need a quick close. But who is your ideal customer? Who's your ideal borrower that fits best with Ironbridge's vision for being a partner in lending? Sure. And I'm going to take this, but I'm sure Richard can add to this. Our ideal customer is is a client who can source properties in many different ways, 
but who is in the business of buying distressed property, fixing it and selling it, or buying property to develop and sell. And somebody who needs our support, you know, constantly, whether it be construction financing, purchase financing, and to use that master loan to keep them going. And again, they can source property at the auctions or off market or whatever. You know, we service all of those. And we have examples of rehabs that are 50000 in South Chicago. We do million-plus-dollar rehabs in San Francisco, huge multifamily projects as well. But I do want to highlight one thing, Tucker, about this question, is those types of clients, when they come to us, and the reason I think that we've been successful is that we do everything in-house. So, you know, it, and it's a big deal. Like for your listeners who are in the market for hard money and they, they should go talk to other lenders. I mean, I would want them to learn as much as they can so that when they talk to us, they can compare and contrast. But what we're what's unique about us is that we value everything in-house. We underwrite in-house. We service your loan in-house. We do the draw processing in-house. And the decision makers are right here in front of you. And so there are a lot of lenders in the market these days, but many of them are not doing all of those things. They're not giving you access to the decision makers. They're not either, you know, either they're not doing loan servicing in-house or this or that. What, what happens is that they don't have a vested interest in your success often, and they also lose the ability to provide high quality service. And so that's where we've shined. You know, I can give you examples of guys in Fresno that buy at the auction, and we've been able to give them cash out refinances same day. Now, I don't want to offer that to your investors, but you know, we can. <laughs> you sure? We, I mean, uh, I've got some properties that uh, we might buy tomorrow. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, but those are important things that, that your your customers, when they're talking to other lenders out there, should ask them. You know, who's the decision maker? Are there third party approvals that are required? Who does the valuation work? We don't charge our borrowers any fees for anything, you know, so everything, all, all you pay is interest rate and points. And it's because, again, we're doing all that work. So yeah, it's a big it's a big feature for us. Yeah. Sure. Think- what is your typical closing length of time? We can do loans in 24 hours for a good customer. But, you know, we like to tell somebody five to seven days. But again, we have credit lines that are accessible every day. So if Tucker came to us and said, hey, here's the prelim, here's the property, he had the whole package ready, and he said, my lender fell apart, can you close this tomorrow? We could probably make that happen for Tucker because he's a known entity. A new borrower, you know, we got to get to know you a little bit, so there's some forms to fill out. You know, I guess that's the simple answer. Yeah, and I think the point there is is that you kind of – you know, you grow with your borrowers. You you are a long term relationship with them, and as they do more business with you, of course, you guys get to know each other better. But doing business becomes easier for both parties, which is a great thing. And I think that's one of the things that's missing with a lot of your competition. There's those additional layers of whateverness between the borrower and the people running the the the, the company, and so you don't get that custom tailored approach, which you guys are able to deliver to virtually all your you know repeat borrowers, which is fantastic. Thank you. So with that being said, you know, I know you guys have grown a ton. Where is it that you guys are lending now or you plan on lending? I know it's a large number of states. Maybe we don't have to list them all, but the highlight ones, where you see the company going as far as growth, and then how should people get a hold of you if they want to uh, potentially talk about having you fund a deal for them? Sure, sure. We originally were West Coast based. Obviously, we're in Portland, Oregon. We're very 
active on the West Coast, Washington, Oregon, California, Arizona. We're slowly moving east. So we currently are set up to make loans in 24 states. But I would say that 20, you know, let's call it 18 of those 24 states, we have very little activity currently. So as borrowers come to us in those states, we're ready to start lending to them in those places. I won't list the states, but our goal is to, you know, lend in any good state. The What limits us sometimes is if the state has very onerous licensing or restrictions. You know, Nevada requires you to have an office in the state to be able to market and originate loans. So we haven't yet, you know, built an office there or, or leased one. Some other states require you to be licensed as a residential lender, where we've been slow to do those as well. But, you know, I think, you know, you'll see us keep adding states. You reach us at either info at ironbridgelending.com or you can email analysts at ironbridgelending.com. I would give you our individual emails, but if you send an email to analysts at ironbridgelending.com, it'll go to four of us. And that way, if I'm away or Richard's away, uh, your needs will be taken care of. Yeah, and I'll make sure that uh, we have both, you know, a link to all the states you're currently lending in, as well as links to the emails so all of our listeners can reach out to you if they do have a deal coming up. Great. Thank you. Steve, before we uh, wrap it up with these guys, you got have any other uh, last questions or comments? No, I think you guys are doing a fantastic job. I'm, I'm very pleased to hear of your success. I can see why that is the case. And by all means, I think our listeners are, uh, will be very, very pleased to connect with you if and when they have needs for your services. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I wholeheartedly endorse Gerard, Richard, and Ironbridge and what they're doing. Like I said, I've borrowed lots of money from them over the years, and they are uh, as easy to work with as anybody, and they're just great guys. So I encourage everybody out there in Listerland to support them. If you do have lending needs moving forward with, you know, real estate that you're going to buy, fix and resell or buy to redevelop. So, all right, guys. Well, thanks again for joining us here on episode 22. Steve, we'll be back next week, probably with a market recap. Came out this week, but we had a great couple guests. So we had to get to this this week and we'll probably do our market recap next week. Some big numbers on there that we can talk about, though. December was solid. December was solid. We're excited to talk about it. For sure. So. All right, everybody out there in Listenland, this is episode 22 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We're wrapping up. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks again for listening to our show, and make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast.